Okay, we're on to another session of the Boulder Bolding with Keith Ruckhouse and Alec Tukatos. And we're wrapping up this whole series. We've gone over all the strategies of a steady state economics and discussed many things and went on many sidelines as well. All is good. And almost every time we have come up against the challenge of how can change happen? What would it take? And of course, the key thing keeps coming up is there, there needs to be a different kind of narrative when it comes to how the economy works and what is the economy. Here's an example of an article that was in the, the Washington Post today. She's an economics writer for the Washington Post, and she was expressing her gratitude to Joe Biden for his budget committee that just came out with the introductory budget for this year, in which they were projecting mild growth. Not this year, they're expecting, you know, kind of the standard growth, somewhere between 2 and 3.5%. But they were saying, as of next year, they're anticipating and they're basing their budget on mild growth. And she was commending Biden for this because, well, ever since Reagan, that almost all the budgetary projections are always based on a very positive outlook for the economy. And, of course, Biden's opposition jumped all over it. This is typical the Democrats. Whenever they're in, in office, the, the economy goes down, which is not true. It's actually the opposite, that when the, the Democrats have been in office, the economy gets stronger. Nonetheless, the criticism is there. More to our point, she's saying, well, got to feed the Americans a positive future outlook. Outlook, Not a realistic one. There's never going to be an economic downturn. There's always going to be this positive growth. That's just one example of a, a narrative that we keep feeding ourselves about the current economy. And of course, Alec, we're not just talking about American economy, especially the last two sessions we talked about international trade and uh, you have reiterated many times that there's a worldwide ideological conquest of neoliberal economics that's taught all over the world which has got everyone at this point not everyone but a lot of people convinced and so we want to talk about what would it take to actually change the narrative especially when it comes to something like your livelihood it's not just an easy thing. There's fear involved. There, there can be violence involved. All the things that we uh, are facing with the economic downturn because of the pandemic. I thought what I would start with is an article that I wrote on my website. This was uh, right after the 2016 election uh, when I wrote this. Mm-hmm. And I thought what I'd do, Alec, is just start reading this, and then we're, we're going to just jump in wherever we want to, and, mm-hmm. and we'll see where it goes. The article's called The Storyline, about what it would take to change the storyline in America. So I'm going to dive in, and Alec, you just jump mm-hmm. in okay. whenever you're ready. I forget that nearly always what always motivates the average voter, at least in America, is the sense of well-being. Ever since I was a kid, I've heard the phrase that Americans vote with their wallets. It is the constant drumbeat of pollsters every election cycle. Are you better off? 
They want what is called in biblical terms blessing. We all want to survive and thrive. Everyone wants blessing to survive and thrive. There is nothing wrong with that. God wants that, the human problem, and most certainly an acute American problem right now is not so much the everyone or the blessing part of the formula, but the appropriate verb. Does the fact that all people want to survive and thrive mean that they should, or better yet, deserve to? The answer to that question depends on the storyline we are telling ourselves. Most people in America would acquiesce to wishing well-being on all humans, if perhaps only to avoid looking selfish. For certain, there are some, whether a minority or majority right now, I'm not sure, who unabashedly believe that well-being for all is dangerous wishful thinking. One should simply seek one's own blessing. The well-being of others is only a concern to the extent that it impinges on my own. The results of the recent election indicate something very clear to me. Again, this was 2016. The Republicans own the storyline. Without a change in story, there will be little progress, reversal, or revolution. This may not sound like much, but from my perspective as a lifelong participant in religion and a scholar of ancient Mesopotamian and Israelite history, I understand how critical the storyline is to civilization. The storyline, here's, here's a definition of what I mean by storyline, and we've talked about what, just what exactly is mm-hmm. that, or a, a narrative or grand narrative. The storyline is an overarching narrative that is collectively upheld to glue together the fractious and competing elements within a society. In the ancient world, and for thousands of years, the storyline was mythological. It was decidedly religious, even though the ancients would not have labeled it as such, since there was no such concept or category as religion. There was just the cosmos, gods, and humans, and the story of how all that fits together. However organic the story begins in a community, it sooner or later is propagated and controlled by ruling elites. And Alec, you have, we have talked about that, you know. The, the, this is not, the storyline of neoliberalism is a well-honed ideology with a well-honed propaganda strategy that going back to... Paul Memorandum. The Paul Mem- Memorandum. This is not bad in and of itself if they manage the communal resources for the community's benefit. Unfortunately and inevitably, the communal storyline powerfully gravitates toward self-justification. The storyline not only justifies inequity, but perpetuates it. Its effectiveness can last a long time and is believed by most in the community so long as most within the community are doing well, which for the majority amount of Americans for the last 40 years have done decently well. And so we can keep perpetuating this, this storyline of how we succeed and how we prosper in America. Or it can be believed by the use of force to apply to doubters. Force can be actual physical force, policing force, and then, of course, the soft violence of economic sanctions and economic control. Although there was a considerable range of variations on the theme, the ancient mythological storyline was basically the same. 
A community degenerates into chaos due to internal conflict, loss of resources, natural forces, or outward threat. Someone restores order almost always through war. Their victory is proof positive the God's approval and the warrior becomes ruler. The ruler appears to be in the right network of powerful forces that determine and influence prosperity. And that's, a, that's kind of a key thing for an economic narrative is who, who seems to have the kind of handle on the unpredictable elements, right? And so, so we're always going, we're always consulting economists, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Any thoughts so far, Alec? Oh, yes, quite, uh, quite jump, a few. Jump in. So, with respect to the storyline or the narrative or a worldview, usually held unconsciously, even though we believe that the world is exactly how the worldview describes it. The difficulty with changing the worldview is that the alternative looks very unnatural, out of the ordinary, rebellious, um, nihilistic, adolescent, not really to be taken very seriously. Anarchic. <laughs> yes, anarchic. Chaos. Yeah, cha yes. Chaotic, yes. Leading to that. So that <clears throat> a point of view usually has a very conservative, in the literal sense of the word, that is to say, if the world is this way, we need to see to it that it remains this way. And it seems to work yes. decently okay. Decently okay over a long period yes. of time. Yes. Then it's filled with a certain meaning of particular words. So, for example, we associate growth with something good. Whereas, as we know, growth in everyday affairs might be good or bad. If I don't have enough food to eat, then growth is a good thing. Whereas, if I have more than enough, it's a bad thing because it leads to diabetes, let's say. It leads to obesity. It leads to illness. It, it leads to a whole variety of things that we don't favor. However, because economics was born in the 18th century as a discipline, we take growth to always be good because at that time, that's what made economics so terribly important. The discipline of economics is right. that it showed us how we can grow economies and that therefore more people will be better off than previously when the vast majority of benefits of society went to an extremely small elite. Correct. Whereas with the coming of the Industrial Revolution, the coming of capitalism, the coming of technology, and industrialization, what you had is the birth of the middle class. For the first time in history, you had even a majority of people doing reasonably well right. in terms of their well-being. Correct. And we, we have talked about that many times, and that is one of the 
arguments always brought up about why communism fails and capitalism triumphs is because it did raise a significant amount. I don't know if you know the percentage. I think it's 40% of the world population out of poverty. That's right. I, I always say the problem is how are you going to get the next 40% out of poverty and it's it's not going to happen with capitalism. Well, that's right. Because when capitalism was born, we didn't have one of the major constraints. And we have, indeed, an engine of growth. The constraint that we didn't have is the planetary resources, the physical resources. Right. You know, uh, we thought, essentially, and we believed that they were infinite, because they seemed infinite. Anybody looking at the world in the 18th century would actually say that that is the case. Exactly. It came into consciousness even for radicals and very, very progressive yeah. people only in the 1960s, let's say, right. that somehow or other the rate at which we grew would not last because of the lack of resources that uh, right. was a result of consuming so many at such a rapid rate and for a very small percentage of people in terms of nations. Within nations, you know, quite a few people use those resources, but the rich nations themselves or the ones that became rich were very few in comparison to the number of nations in the world. On the one hand, you had a limitation of resources that merged into conscious, emerged into consciousness. And the other was that you had a sense that even if we had enough resources, it wouldn't really contribute to the well-being of people, precisely because if you have more than enough, then it goes against the well-being of people. And as you reminded us of Keynes, that he really thought that we would get to a point where most humans would say, well, I have enough. I don't, I don't need any more. Well, actually, it came even earlier. Adam Smith saw that rationally people would come to the conclusion that we had enough. Rationally, people have wants and they have also needs. But they would come to the conclusion eventually that they'd had enough and they would choose to work less and enjoy life more in other ways than just feeding themselves or having another car, that, that enjoyment would come from community. I'm going to stop right there because that I believe that's happening right now in America. I've followed the whole, quote, problem of people not going back to work. And there's a lot of unemployment signs, you know, help wanted signs, especially in the restaurant and service industry. Mm -hmm. And they just thought everyone was going to flock back to work as soon as they could. And, of course, that's not happening right now. And there's a lot of people coming from different directions. Of course, we have our usual Republicans who want to claim that it's because of government handouts, you know, the extra $300 and people are not incentivized to go back to work for one well that's pretty sad that an extra three hundred dollars a month is all it took for people not want to go back to jobs because the job would pay less than that it's it's much bigger thing 
for a lot of service industry people because they're saying it not only did not pay a living wage, it was a miserable job. And I learned during the pandemic to live with less and to be with my family. And friends? Yeah, to be with friends, to actually see my children, to spend time with my children. I think this is bigger than what a lot of people are anticipating that I think people are saying, I, I think I'm done with the constant consumption. Here's part of the storyline of Americans is like, well, you got to get out and consume. You know, if we don't consume, our economy is going to go down the tubes. 70% of American economy is dependent on consumption. Yeah. The rest <laughs> is government expenditures and the yeah. third big category is investment. I probably am going to scare the crap out of economists or a lot of conservatives or even liberals or whatever, but I really think we need to start figuring out what an economy looks like that is not based on a ridiculous amount of consumption. Yeah, and you know, the this thing, uh, you mentioned uh, Republicans. My own sense is that it is a, a bigger thing than just the, a Republican point of view or a conservative point of view. This is an American point of view yes. that is being spread all over the world. And America is the champion nation, in my estimation, of individualism. And so the way that you show that you are better than somebody else is a whole variety of ways. The most benign is that you work harder, you know, than somebody else or more intelligently. Mm-hmm. Of course, the very nasty ways that in which we can show that one is superior is through racism, through uh, sexist attitudes towards uh, women. In general, the inherent belief that we go by that there are some people that are inferior, despite the Declaration of Independence that says very, very clearly uh, that we humans are equal in terms of our humanity right? We're all equally human. That's what is meant by equality in the Declaration of Independence. We're obviously not equal in terms of intelligence. We're not equal in terms of weight. We're not equal in terms of uh, boldness. We're not equal in terms of a whole variety of wealth. But there is one fundamental equality that is undeniable in the Declaration of Independence, and that is that we're all equally human. Yes. And I think that that aspect has been lost by and large over history. Firstly, certainly with respect to racism. Uh, Secondly, in terms of classism and other ways. Certainly, what they wrote was far beyond what they could foresee. They were setting themselves up for a serious challenge. That's the the mystery uh, of what I've come to uh, see very recently, and that is that human beings can allow certain insight and values to come through them, which are exquisite values. There are things that can come through us that are great truths, great values, even though in our life we don't follow them. And that is really quite a miracle, and we need to really pay attention to that so that If somebody does not follow the kinds of things that have come through that are very good, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that they're hypocritical. It means that, like all human beings, we often don't live up to what we claim are our values. Well, and that's okay. Yes, I really yeah. think that's okay. That's uh, I'm reading a book by a Russian Orthodox 20th century thinker, Sergei Bulgakov, who basically calls his philosophy of economy uh, ideal realism. He will argue that the economy is fueled by idealism. He thinks that's part of what labor is. What makes for production is the labor of thinking creatively about what you want to see happen. Yes, and it matters a great deal what it is that you want to see happen. So if, as with neoliberalism, what you consider a good thing and you want more of it is to have more stuff, you know, one has to challenge that notion right. that this is not about creating a better life and to see wanting more than enough to be greed. And greed, by definition, is an addiction yeah. and therefore bad for you and bad for the society just as surely as alcohol, just as surely, only stronger still. Because the addiction, it seems to me, of power and money are the greatest addictions of human beings and the most destructive. I, I agree. I yeah. agree. And, but that's, by the way, where what I'm talking about, where the storyline comes in, because in, it's very clear to me in my studies of ancient Mesopotamian cultures, the mythological story is about explaining how it is that the whole cosmos is oriented to why these elites have all the power and wealth and why it needs to be in order to hold chaos back. And that story, even though it's it's not called myth and we don't even talk in terms of gods, it's still the basic premise. Well, you encountered that with the public banking. I've read this myself. Regardless of knowing you, you have to have the banks operable and solvent and flourishing. Otherwise, oh, what a great threat this will be to the whole eco economic system if yes, these big banks go. Yes. We're going to have a global collapse if we don't rescue the banks. Yeah, and as with everything, it depends on how we rescue. I think it's true that if we allowed the banks to fail, it would damage the financial system of the United States very, very much. And therefore, it would damage the financial system of the world very much. The question is... How do you save the financial system? And it's not by saving the banks. Uh, the necessity for saving the financial system, and again, when you save somebody's life or some institution's life, is for what purpose? Saving is necessary but not sufficient. Then what would you do instead of what you had before? Because if you just save them and not reorient the banks, let's mm -hmm. say, or the financial system better still, then you're feeding the next crisis. In the same way that with respect to General Motors, I think it was a good idea to save General Motors because if you had not, it would mean that a lot of people in General Motors would be out of work. And if they're out of work, they will buy less goods and services and less houses, etc., etc. And therefore, the economy would take a downturn, would bring other parts 
parts of the economy that are downturn. So I see the necessity, just like saving the financial system, I see the necessity of uh, saving uh, General Motors. But here's what uh, another way of saving General Motors is to sell General Motors to its workers. Well, and you know, yeah, uh, several advocates not, during 2008 were saying Obama should have turned over Bank of America to a public federal utility, bank. essentially. You know, yeah. yeah, and not just one bank, but rethink the whole institution of uh, of banks or the whole institution of large corporations. For instance, with General Motors, why did it get into so much trouble? Well, because it shifted away from creating good cars to financing the buying of cars. And then when the financial system was in jeopardy, then General Motors was in jeopardy. So I would have sold it to the workers in General Motors, which would give them the incentive to do what with respect to cars? It's to create really very good cars. Why would they have the incentive to do that? Firstly, out of pride, you know, that they produce something really good. And secondly, out of survival, namely, that if they didn't produce good cars, then they wouldn't have a job. You've got to change the incentive system of the new direction that you want with your new story. The new story will give you different goals. So, for example, you know, enough is enough rather than more is always good. Or as we said with international trade, you know, some goods and services should right. not be traded. They, they should be produced right. internally. Yes. Well, let, are, let me go back guess, to yeah. uh, the, the whole idea of the storyline a little bit mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Economist Thomas Sedlicek, he wrote a book called The Economics of Good and Evil. He was the economic minister for Czechoslovakia, I believe. Um, he says, all economics is the telling of stories by people of people to people. Our effort to rationally grasp the world around us. Critically, that's the end of his quote. Critically, the storyline mediates the anxiety of the community, especially over the disparate distribution of resources. Why, why do some people have too much and most people don't have enough? So that's where the storyline comes in. It, it mediates this disparity. The storyline appeases the community by explaining the logic of disparity. Sadly, I think in America, white supremacy has been a part of that storyline. This, this explains the disparity. Uh, why some people enjoy an abundance of resources and others a scarcity. And again, a bit of lethal force goes a long way to persuading those who are doubting the storyline. This issue of superiority, that is to say, an ideology that justifies enormous differences in income and wealth is based on the idea that there are people who are superior to others. They're superior in their values, they're superior in their intelligence, they're superior in their work ethic, a whole variety of superiority. So discrepancies in income and wealth, even very wide ones, are inherently justifiable. That is to say, these people have earned these uh, yes, benefits. Right. And this is supported not only by racial superiority and not only by the secular environment, let's say, it is also supported by religion. So, for example, 
there is the doctrine of discovery. It was uh, proposed as part of a doctrine by the Catholic Pope, probably around the 1400s, if I remember correctly, which is an extraordinary idea of white people, when they come to a piece of land that is populated, let's say, by Native Americans, if they saw that there were uh, other human beings there, but they were inferior, they had the right and responsibility to take over that land and to do it as Christians. Not, oh, you're somewhat weak as a, as a Christian and, and be careful about being too greedy. It says, no, 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 you have a responsibility to take over that land. The United States is born with the sense of superiority of whites over Native Americans, obviously, or blacks as slaves. That that superiority is extended, of course, to brown people. Mm -hmm. In Europe, the superiority was one of class because everybody was white. So you didn't have that sense that certain human beings were inferior due to their skin color. They were just inferior due to their being a serf who didn't own land or who were not gentlemen and were not ladies. I, I find that really, really very insidious, how all-embracing that worldview is in the United yes. States. Probably everywhere all over the world. Yes, all I'm saying that it has not had the influence in the European psyche, mostly not because of greater virtue, but because they were all white. Now that people are coming from overseas, from Africa, the former co uh, colonies that are invading Europe, you see that racism coming up in Europe as well. There's no question about it. All I'm saying that historically, the United States has been influenced by the racial issue more so than by economic class. And now, of course, the Europeans have influenced the Americans to also feel superior because of class. And class defined by money and by power. Yes. So I'm still coming back to this, and I think it's okay that we keep coming back yes, to yes, this. Sure. You need You need some sort of narrative that explains the disparity. Yes. And makes sense for most people why some people have nothing and some people have almost everything. Going back to my article here, I come to this kind of thinking. The essence of our storyline, I'm talking about America, revolves around freedom. All of us who have lived in America are indoctrinated by this elusive value. Our nation, the story goes, broke from tyranny and declared independence from the enslavement of monarchs. Above all else, we are free people, and we aggressively attack or defend against anti-freedom forces. We have a declaration of independence. Nothing should obstruct our ability to pursue happiness. Our mutual embrace of freedom, however, must out of necessity be defined, and it's here where the ruling party in our nation has cornered the market. Again, it still comes down to what common Americans, the story that they believe about their well-being. I read an article a while back about Latino men and why they were attracted to Trump. And one of them said, 
uh, it was explained to me the difference between Republicans and the Democrats is king. So, well, Republicans are the party of the wealthy, and the Democrats are the uh, the party of the poor. And the and his reasoning is, well, I want to be wealthy. At times, we talk about crafting a narrative. We we've talked about a lot of solutions, you know, a lot of ways we can go, but the resistance is still pretty steep. And because the narrative that most people are listening to, not just listening to, that they believe, is in order for me to have well-being, things need to be this way. I've also read articles coming from the psychological point of view about narratives, and we all have them, Mm -hmm. and we all need them, Mm -hmm. and we tend to, at certain points, go looking for the kind of information, facts, persuasion that is going to bolster the narrative. In a big sense, it's not just about countering some other narrative. It's it's about somehow um, helping us to realize that this narrative does not work anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, here here's some examples of that I gave our dominant story of freedom. A, a politician commercial says, I will support government when it promotes freedom and justice. I will oppose it when it stands in the way and makes the life of an individual, a family, or business more difficult. Uh, again, freedom is kind of the dominant thing about well-being. One other politician says, while holding a rifle in his hand, I will work to get the government off our backs and out of our way. So a sizable minority of Americans believe at this point that freedom cannot be promoted, facilitated, or generated by the government. Government, for the most part, can only obstruct or not obstruct our freedom. This is very ignorant stuff. I mean, in the Declaration of Independence, perhaps it's uh, misnamed, as it were, but there is no question that the Declaration says freedom for all equally. And so if your freedom imposes on somebody else, then you can't have that freedom. This is very, very clear in the Declaration of Independence. So this is a misreading and a very bad education on the part of schools and universities when they talk about freedom, only to mean that it's the only value. But I don't know of any political scientist that does not consider that an equal emphasis in terms of political and economic values is rather justice, freedom and right, justice. Right. Uh, and even a libertarian will agree that my freedom stops where the freedom of other people begins. I'm very keen on changing the narrative by appealing to core American values because that okay. overcomes the danger of saying, well, you know, that's very good for the Scandinavians or the Germans or the Chinese, but these are not uh, really American values. This is a profoundly American value Yes. of, uh, of justice. Yes. So I would go in that direction, and that goes against the notion of superiority. Well, that's the kind of debate where it's not a debate; it's something else. It's a it's a culture war, I guess. You know, over what really is American. 
Yes, that's right. Know. Yes. And then with the FDR, for example, he has the notion of four freedoms, but two of them are uh, issues of justice. So, for example, the first freedom is the freedom to associate and to be with other people and freedom of speech. Right. The other one is uh, freedom of worship. You can worship or not worship as your conscience or your viewpoint and demands. Then there are two freedoms from, freedom from want and freedom from aggression. Those issues are issues of justice. Freedom from want means no poverty. Right. You know, not some people gaining uh, wealth at the expense of others. Whether now, that's then, a huge if, one, as we've talked about. Yes, that, you know, it is. You're not, it's huge. We have to stop transferring cost. Yes. So I can, to someone else, so I can make the profit. That's right. <laughs> and uh, the second one is freedom from violence. You know, freedom from is a justice issue. He just posed it in in terms of freedom. Unfortunately or fortunately, it doesn't really matter, but we've got to understand it. And he was not in favor of those four principles only for the United States. He said, listen to this. Now, this now is who are you saying he? F FDR. FDR, okay. Yeah. Uh, FDR said that these values do not, if we hold them for the United States, we hold them for all the world. He went so far as to be in favor of no country, including the United States, have enough power and military power to impose its will on somebody else. That's how far he took it. That there, there is a responsibility in the United States to attend to poverty, not only of people of the United States, but also of the world. Given that we're so privileged, given that we have such a gift of nature, I mean, the value of the natural environment of the United States might be the, the richest in any part of the world. So whenever you're given so much, you owe more. Right. I'm very, very much in favor of saying to somebody, well, you know, that's an American. It's not sufficient to be born here to be an American. Right. Uh, as one of my very, very good friends said, Alec, America is an idea. It's not a place. <laughs> I like it. Alec, you've helped me realize, well, where is that concrete kind of starting place for us? It's like... Let's talk about what it means to be an American. That's right. And let's talk about the Declaration of Independence. Let's talk about the Constitution. Yes. Not just in terms of one little amendment, yes. <laughs> the Second That's Amendment. Right. No. Oh, by the way, there's a whole bunch more amendments, not just the Second Amendment. I think you've helped me see, oh, here's the window into into this. It's like... Read the Declaration of Independence, read the Constitution, engage people on that level of... And if you, we combine it with Christianity, uh, what does the doctrine of discovery have to do with the life and the teaching of Jesus? It's the opposite. Right. You know, he doesn't confer with the religious uh, authorities. He goes around with tax collectors and uh, prostitutes and certainly very many women. 
Well, I think, which yes, to... I'm very much thinking in terms of what, what kind of r- religious, I don't know what to call it, a reformation mm-hmm. but it's really beyond a reformation it, it's a, a revolution of some kind i think we're already on, yes, on I a, agree. not just a religious but a, a new age of the way humans think we can't keep thinking in terms of we've got to have an authority to tell us what to do and if we don't have authority and if we don't have a hierarchy now, those are still good. Hierarchies can be very functioning things, but when that's all we appeal to. And also we've got to consider, as with John Lewis, as good trouble and bad trouble. There are dominating hierarchies yes. that's based on superiority, and there are uh, hierarchies that are good and necessary hierarchies. Right. A parent needs to have authority over a three-year-old, but for the good of the three-year-old, not for the good of the parent. Correct, correct. (laughs) All right, well, here are some of the suggestions I had in my article, Alec. Feel Mm -hmm. free to to dive in there. I say our current version of the American myth needs a transformation if we want to break our gridlock. But storylines can be stubbornly resistant to revision, especially for those who most benefit from it. I can confidently say that we can start. And here's my suggestions. For one, stop worshiping wealth. You know, there was a time when American, there have been times in America where we did not worship wealthy people. Absolutely. Resist the false notion that possessions, whether mansions, guns, or cars, measure freedom. Mm-hmm. Amassing more than one needs is greed. It should not be admired or desired. Instead, desire well-being for all of creation, a world attended to by God. Second, we must resist the false connection, we've talked about this, between wealth and intelligence, competence, wisdom, or concern for the common good. The measure of a righteous person, biblically righteous, most often refers to ruling elites, is the extent to which he or she is in solidarity with the poor. Solidarity goes far beyond a little philanthropy here and there. It means taking full responsibility for the weak and dispossessed, even at the risk of losing one's own wealth. Third, we must get realistic about what freedom means and how it is secured. No one who is impoverished is free nor anyone with unimaginable debt. We cannot measure freedom by, as a friend of mine put it, don't touch my stuff and don't tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Along these lines, then, let us rid ourselves of the notion that only the government can restrict freedom, all the while being enslaved to the unbending will of corporations who perpetually sing the mantra of self-aggrandizement. It is absurd to bemoan taxation without representation, all the while increasingly and unquestioningly paying fees and taking on debt. Whether one works for a corporation or does business with one, rest assured one does not have an ounce of representation with them. Governments are not the only ones, nor the primary ones, who restrict freedom. 
governments can and should protect and promote freedom, especially from economic systems that seize it and hold it ransom. My political bottom line is solidly grounded in the Bible and in Christian tradition. No more poor. It is not normal for someone to struggle with the most fundamental essentials of survival while others are at ease. It is also not okay for someone's or anyone to only have the basic essentials in a context where they cannot thrive. When Cliven Bundy captured media attention for resisting federal regulators, he opined his fantasies for a just society, saying that African Americans would have been better off left in slavery. Yes, a slave does have his or her basic needs met, but no one thrives in an environment where one is only valued as economic quantitative terms. Blessing is both surviving and thriving, but neither can be measured solely by the amassing of things. My own sense, Keith, increasingly has become a revisioning of what constitutes democracy. It's no longer sufficient to get more people to vote, to make it easier for people to vote, etc., because representative democracy creates an elite that does not follow what the vast majority of people want. So there's very, very good evidence now yes. that 80, 90, 70% of people want and if the top 1% don't want it, it doesn't pass. It it's, never becomes law. It's almost in, for sure. That's that. right. And the other part is that only 20% of people uh, would want to have put right. into practice. It might uh, go through because the elite wants it to go through, and the elite wants it to go through because it benefits them. Yeah, and the 20% who includes the elites are those who this storyline works for them. I'm successful. I have a successful ranch. I have a successful business. Uh, so, right. of course, I want I want this storyline to keep going. I want this narrative. And if only there was more people that would believe this narrative. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> we right. We could keep it going. Many people believe we are in a crisis of democracy and we're we're heading yes. straight towards Yes. And it's one. not just the matter. The thing that I want to underline from my very recent uh, reading and uh, beginning to understand is that it's not just a matter of getting people to the polls, making it easier for them to vote, driving them over or busing them over or opposing what uh, the Republicans yes. want to do in Texas, do I know? That's necessary, but it's nowhere sufficient anymore. No, we can all take some blame for that because... Yes, yes, yes. I'm completely guilty of this we we've left the whole apparatus of democracy to experts to experts and to voting once every four years Correct. or once every two years yes even then uh, not very many people voting yes. i mean but no but it's also in most of our workplaces there's not a democratic that's right system you don't vote on anything as an employee that's you're right. you are hired by Someone with all the power, someone with all the power can fire you. And then, then you're told, well, here's, here's another four years, and now you get to say what? Yes. <laughs> well, there are two things, of course, with that part. One is, what percentage of people choose the candidates? And it's n less than 1% of the voting public that right. choose the candidates. And then only 50% vote for the series of candidates that were chosen by the less yes. than 
Yes. So hardly representative. So that's an issue that has come up uh, very recently, actually, uh, because there are some very concrete suggestions as to how to attend to that. Uh, and I've learned about them only in the last year or so, let's say, if if that. And Christian Felber, Felber has a lot, a lot to uh, yes. say about and that. And he himself borrows from the two people that suggested this other way of voting and this other way of uh, having the expression and the will yes. of we the people being expressed Yes. So that we use politicians not as means of expressing our will, but we use them to enforce the will that we already have expressed. That's very, very different. Yes. In and other words, it inverts the relationship from we the people to politicians. The politicians are the servants of we the people. Yes. And You've not yelled into the politicians uh, being the servants of the uh, powerful and, uh, and the rich. <laughs> yes, you've yelled that in the mi microphone several times yes, over the last right. session. You, yeah. you are the servants. Yes. I say that with such fervor because it's something that has come into me again very recently, and even though it's been in, in front of my eyes. For so long. I'll be 80 in December, for goodness sake. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up, and we'll see if we want to Yeah, I think it bears discussion. one more session, yeah. Okay. If, if, All right. Yeah. We'll do that, and then we're Alec and I are going to talk about uh, maybe uh, continuing a, a new kind of podcast, and we'll see how that goes. All right. All right. Thanks very much for listening. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.